I'm reading this morning from Habakkuk chapter 3. I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Fantastic passage (laughs) about trusting God. Isn't that dynamic? Probably the best passage in all of Scripture, uh, challenging us to trust God because he is is our Savior. He's our power. Uh, This morning... I was going to go play golf. And my wife says, no, you're supposed to teach this morning. No, I'm just kidding. But, but while I'm here and I've got my golf club, I want to teach you something about golf. Ready? The most important thing is to hit the ball straight. That's all you need to know. You know, even the, even the professionals can't always hit the ball straight. So many things go wrong in your swing. Oh, I mean, I, I can't number all the things that go wrong in your swing. Uh, and it's the same thing as we walk with Christ and learn to trust Him. I mean, we hear it over and over again. We remind ourselves. We remind other people. Well, you got this problem. We, just, we need to trust in God. But it's so hard to trust God. It just keeps coming back. You know, God wants us to live the abundant life, he said, while we're all tangled up in the redundant life of worry. And we worry about who we're going to marry, if if we are going to marry, and then we get married, and go, oh my goodness, I'm married. We worry about that person. (laughs) We worry about our jobs. We worry about income. We worry about this country that's in a mess. We worry about we're going to have enough money for retirement. Are we ever even going to reach retirement? And we worry about what we think other people are thinking about us. So we just are kind of locked into worry. It's like a cancer, just eats away at the abundant life. So we can't really have that peace. And remember Jesus said, he says, he says I'm, I, my burden is light. See my backpack? It's empty. And so whatever's bothering you, I'll stick it in the backpack. I'll carry it for you. And we'll just walk along hand in hand. And, and, and sometimes we're really good at that. Sometimes we get that one thing that's bothering us more than others maybe, or maybe it's a weaker thing, and we stick it in Jesus' backpack and we really say, good Lord, you carry that for me, and we let it go. And then we're at peace with that. But most of the things, we reach back in and we pull it out of his backpack because we've we got to worry about something, right? 
And growing in Christ and learning how to trust him is gradually learning how to leave it in his backpack just a little bit longer. (laughs) And as we get older, we can leave it there longer and longer. We never get it solved. We always worry about something. And there's a difference between being concerned about something and worrying about something. Uh, To be concerned is to take action in a reasonable manner in what we can do. To worry is to live in fear because we can't do. And we spend way too much time doing that. And even those of us, when we we, uh, do use our good, solid intentions and reason to help like we're supposed to, then we worry about the results. We don't think about God. We're worrying how we can change and get the results to happen. And so it's, uh, it's difficult. And so Habakkuk was one, as we've been going through the book of Habakkuk, at least the first two chapters, and today the final chapter, we see a guy that's been modeling for us how to walk in fear about tomorrow, what might or what will happen. And he knows what's going to happen. Uh, let me give you a little background. For those of you who weren't here last Sunday or the Sunday before, here we've got this prophet 600 years before Christ, God's ready to come down and destroy the Israelites after 800 years of being good to these people and they continue to reject him. He finally says the time has come. So we're going to have to bring in the Babylonians and do some destruction. So Habakkuk sees all this wickedness and he says, God, do something. And God says, okay, I'm bringing in the Babylonians and they're going to extend my wrath on on my people. Habakkuk says, you can't do that. You're a holy God. I know you better than that. And so he has this argument with God and then God says, uh, okay, Habakkuk, uh, all I want you to do, as Habakkuk backs off, because he, he, in the first part of chapter 2, he's worried that God's going to whack him one, you know, because you don't argue with God that. By the way, it's okay to argue with God. When you're mad and you don't know what's going on, he loves it. He just doesn't want you to go hide and run away from him. So talk to him. And so here's Habakkuk saying, well, I'm going to get a little bit of a whip in here because I'm arguing with God. And, and, and the Lord says, well... I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. All I want you to do is wait. You just wait on me to bring out this destruction. But he does one other thing. He points to this little, this little phrase in chapter 4, verse 2, that says, the righteous man lives by faith. And so Habakkuk gets that picture, and he falls down in prayer, as we're going to see in, in chapter 3. You see, we have to have a reason before we trust God. We sang a little earlier, hallelujah, hallelujah, which means praise Yahweh, praise Yahweh. Or as one Hebrew professor said, it's be to be excitedly boastful over our God, Yahweh. But we need a reason. And every time in Scripture, when, it's, when they say praise God, they always, without exception, have a reason to praise God. And it's the same thing with uh, trusting God. If we're going to trust him, really trust him, we have to have a reason to trust him. So Habakkuk is going to give us two good, solid reasons to trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, uh, you're there with your nice, light backpack, and you want to carry those worries, those worries that really are like a cancer that uh, eat away at the abundant life. And, and we're going to worry all of our life, and you know that. But, but you want us to continue to grow, to trust you, to put that uh, worry 
in Christ's backpack and let him handle it. And we're going to have to do it again day in and day out. But that's okay. That's what gives us that peace, that, that uh, real joy. And you're honored and we are fulfilled. So we thank you for that. And thank you for how Habakkuk responded that we can take these two uh, reasons to trust him and uh, run with it. In Jesus' name we pray. The first reason is he recognizes God is holy because right at the end of that the second chapter, when God says, well, I'm going to destroy the Babylonians too, he says the Babylonian gods are nothing but stone and wood covered with silver and gold. That's it. They can't do anything. They are worthless. They can't even talk. But I am in my holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent. And Habakkuk is going, okay, God, you are sovereign. I'm going to trust in you. To recognize God's holiness in order to trust God is absolutely mandatory for that trust. It's the very foundation for being able to trust God. Vince Lombardi was the coach of the Green Bay Packers in the 60s. He always had a winning record, considered the greatest coach that's ever lived in the National Football, in the American Football League. The reason they say he was so good is because he always went back to the basics, like Coach Pete. And there was a time when they lost two games in a row. And Lombardi teams didn't lose two games in a row. So when he got his team together the next day after that second loss, he said, we're going back to the basics. And he held up a football and he says, this is a football. We'll start with that. And that's what God's saying to Habakkuk. I am holy. We start there if we're going to trust God. The angels, it was their theme song. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is looking at God and he sees the heavenly scene and, and the angels are saying, Kadosh, 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 Hebrew for holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. And then in the, in the book of Revelation, when you have that same scene, and now we're, we're speaking New Testament, is Greek, and they go, Hagias, 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 the same angels, for the Lord God Almighty. And so their theme song included that holiness of God. And the people in Israel, they had all these items, grounds, water, clothing, that they said was holy, which means to set it apart. It was set apart for God's glory. And so they knew that. And even Habakkuk earlier in chapter 1, when he says, God, you're holy. But he didn't really get it. He didn't really understand what that meant. Now at the end of the book, he's beginning to understand. To be holy is to be different in the right way. God is different from us. And so I want to quickly go through three observations from Scripture to show us how God is different from us. Uh, first of all, he's different from us in his looks. Uh, when he revealed himself to the prophets, how did he come? How did he show himself? Scared the willies out of them. Fire! You look at several of the prophets, even John, at the book of, beginning of the Revelation, Jesus appeared in fire. But God is not a ball of fire out there in the, in the universe somewhere. Jesus said he's a spirit. That's a different 
that's a different realm that we all, we, you know, we hear about spirit and we have the Holy Spirit within us, those of us who believe, but we don't really, we don't really see it. It's beyond our ability to, to really comprehend. You know, man is made out of molecules. God is made out of spiracules. Now, I had to make up that word because I didn't know what, how, to, how to identify him to get, put some substance to him. So he's spiracules. He's different. To me, he's kind of like information. When we, when we look at the, the living cell, and the molecular biologists are really confused about this, they don't know where this information comes from. In the DNA is not a matter, or excuse me, DNA is matter. Information is not matter. They're different. And so the DNA is carrying this information, and then it transcribes it to the RNA in the nucleus. The RNA can re get out of the nucleus. The R DNA can't. So it sends that information. That information then goes up into the ribosome factory where all these proteins take that information and they build amino acids. Long chains of amino acids that then, when they're long enough, they become certain proteins, and then there's long proteins that make the cell and so forth. So what we have here is a bunch of information that is taken by the body and it uh, reproduces itself. God is like information. It's like Jesus said when we receive the Spirit of God, it's, um, it's like the wind. You know, we can't see it. So God has revealed himself in a couple of ways. One, in fire, which demonstrates the, the um, wrath of God. And he's demonstrating himself through Jesus Christ, which is receive the love of God. He also has made himself uh, visible to us through his uh, thoughts and his ways. Remember when he said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, man. My ways are not your ways. He's different in that way. He values the inside of man. Man values the outside. He lives to love man. Man lives to love himself. His wealth is eternal. Man's wealth is temporal. He speaks the truth. Man speaks lies. He forms the future, and man fears the future. He honors the humble. Man honors the proud. He judges sin. Man rejoices in sin. He loves to forget. Man forgets to love. His thoughts are pure, moral, and just. Our thoughts are impure and immoral and unjust. And you can read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. It'll explain all that. So he's different in the way he looks. He's different in the way he, he thinks and in his ways. And, and he's different, third, thirdly, in his acts. He spoke everything into existence, the scripture said. Like Hebrews, he made something out of nothing. Took spiritules and made molecules. He took man, he reached down into the dust of the earth and he picked it up with his hands and he formed a skeletal system. And a dermatological system and a muscular system and a, and a a neurological system with a brain where, where all the wires go throughout our body and send signals and those signals come back to our brain to communicate. 
and he formed a, a circulatory system where the heart was pumping blood through the arteries to send oxygen and nutrients to every, every part of our body through all these little, eventually tiny zillions of billions or whatever of little capillaries. And then, the, and then the waste comes out through the veins back to the heart, up to the lungs, and the carbon dioxide is removed. Oxygen comes into the other side of the heart, goes up. Biology, right? <laughs> Same old process. And he, and he formed a digestive system where the food goes into the stomach and the acids then break up those proteins down into amino acids. They then down get into our, our, our intestines and they're absorbed in our intestines so that nutrients can come into our body. And he formed an endocrine system with all these uh, parts in our body, these glands that uh, secrete hormones which keep everything in balance. And then he created an excretory system where the liquid and the solid waste can leave our body, be filtered properly so it doesn't poison our body. All eight of those systems function automatically. All we have to do is stick a bunch of junk food in our face. It's all automatic. And, and you cannot have just one of those systems existing by itself. All eight systems have to be working together for it. Whether we're talking about birds or fish or, or lower animals, larger animals, they all need to have all eight of those systems in place in the beginning in order for it to exist. And God created all that. What an awesome God. And then he created a reproductive system. Started all over again. With all the variation. Look at you. Bunch of variation people out there. What a, what a dynamic God. So our holy God is different from man in his bold looks and his moral thoughts and in his powerful actions. And so what happens when we grasp the meaning of his holiness, the foundation? Well, we're like, uh, we're like Habakkuk, or we should be like Habakkuk. And it says there in verse 2 of chapter 3, The Lord, I have, I have heard the report about you, and I fear I heard the report that you are a God who is going to judge your people. But also, again, the righteous man lives by faith. And Isaiah says that the righteous will, it will go well with you. God tells Isaiah to tell the righteous it'll be okay. So here Habakkuk is getting this balance of seeing the wrath of God and also seeing the love of God. And so we ask ourselves, well, what does it mean for us as Christians to really fear God? And as Christians, we, have to, we tend to go in, in two extremes. Uh, one is to be afraid of God. You know, and, and uh, he's an angry God, and he, he's watching out after us. And some of you were raised in homes, you were raised in churches, where you were told God was going to get you. He was an angry God. And until you found the grace of God, uh, God wasn't seen properly. And you were miserable in a lot of ways, and it's still difficult, because you feel that anger, uh, that he is an angry God. And the fear is wrong. That's not what he means. Uh, we also go in the top, of, uh, totally in the other direction. And he says, well, it's respect. I'm supposed to respect God. But the very definition of respect is to consider, is to honor or esteem or to consider someone. And I do that with my neighbor across the street, and I barely know him. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about seeing God as an awesome God and responding to that awesome God with all of his power to judge, power to send his wrath, but also power to love in ways that uh, 
uh, we, can, we can't hardly understand. But one thing we can understand is that very dramatic love through Jesus Christ told His wrath, God's wrath, to put Christ on that cross so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could live knowing our God and living with Him forever. So you can say, in a sense, the the love of God overpowered the wrath of God in this particular area. So really, to hold Him in awe because of His great power to destroy and also to uh, deliver is what it means to, to fear God. I've noticed over about the last 15 years, and I, I, I want to I judge the young people. Some of you old people are probably need it too a little bit, but especially the younger generation. They've taken the word, the adjective from awe, which is awesome. And they've taken the word awesome, and they've, they've taken all the power out of it. And so everything's awesome. If I put a little sunflower seed, and if it's on top of an ant, and I help the ant carry it across the street, you know, what an awesome job I've done. You know, what, what a wonderful person I am. Um, kind of like the word uh, being a hero. You know. um, we kind of cheapen it when everybody's a hero. When I got a letter in the mail from the VDA the other day, and they said, uh, I, I'm a hero too, and I always spend time in Vietnam, but I didn't do anything special. We cheapened the word awesome. I was in uh, northern Idaho, and I went into a, a store and bought a roll of masking tape. And uh, the lady at the counter, she, she looks at me, and she tells me how much it is, 90 cents or something. That's back when it was cheaper. And she says, is that it? I said, yeah. She says, awesome. Awesome. And that's the first time I heard somebody say it, and I'm walking out of the store, Awesome. That's not awesome. My son and I had lunch a couple of um, a months ago, and the waitress came right at the end of our meal, and, and she says, well, how is everything? And we said, we're fine. And she says, awesome. And my son and I looked at each other. I guess it was just last week, I saw a guy with a, uh, a black shirt and yellow printing across the top. He says, I am not perfect, but I am awesome. <laughs> no, you're not I didn't say that, but boy, I felt, I felt like saying it. You know, the spaghetti really gets sticky when I remember uh, the time my wife and I took dancing lessons three years ago. And we had our instructor, and we were ballroom dancing, and we were stumbling all over because we had all these different kinds of dances, and she's tripping on me, I'm tripping on her. And he goes, you guys are awesome. And we looked at each other, and we just broke out in laughter. We were not awesome. We were awful. Awesome. To really see God and understand what it means is, is to be in, metaphorically in, in some kind of a, a state of, of shock at who he is, with our mouths wide open, knowing that our ability to live one more day or one more hour is in the hands of an awesome, holy, merciful God. Uh, his awesomeness is wrapped up in both, as I've mentioned already, in his great wrath, his powerful wrath, and his powerful love. 
I have a friend by the name of Dave. Down in Prescott, Arizona, years ago, he, he was an electrician. And he said, you know, I, I loved it. He's six foot five, big guy. Said, I loved it when the widow ladies would call me to come over and do some, you know, check, check out their electricity because the light bulb would go out and they didn't know if it was the switch. It, it wouldn't work. And so he would go over, reach up, and he'd pull the light bulb off. And he'd put his finger in his mouth and get all that saliva like you do when you're checking the wind, you know. And he'd stick it up into the light. Okay, honey, flip the switch. And she'd watch, he'd watch him panic. What are you doing? You know, no, you're going to kill yourself. <laughs> well, he knew that sticking it up there, there's a positive and a negative, and he, that, that uh, saliva is a conductor of electricity, and he'd get a little tiny zip, and he can impress them, you see. He taught me how to do it. <laughs> but I'm a coward. So, Now, wives, if you want to know if your husband loves you, have him stick his finger up there and you can man the switch. Or woman the switch, whatever. Here's what Dave uh, understood. He understood the wrath of electricity and the love of electricity. The electricity can kill, but it can also bring light and warmth. And that's the balance. When we see our awesome God, that's what we're looking at. We're seeing both. And it ought to uh, really drop us to our knees. And so now we get into the verse 3 and following. Verse 3 through verse 15. He's told us, you see, he's, he's understanding that God is holy. He is an awesome God. But he's going to add to that that he's a saving God that saves daily. If we belong to Jesus Christ, he's there saving. He's working on us and saving us from who knows what every day. We know we're already saved from the penalty of sin. Christ took care of that, but he's there every day. And, and, and what he does in this next section, by the way, this next section, and Jackson mentions this three, two, two, a couple of weeks ago, that this is a bunch of poetry. And chapter 3 is just loaded with this exaggerated poetry to try to make his point. The Greeks don't like it. No, you, you put it down here like this. You take a picture of this thing and let me see what it's supposed to be. Because when you get the translators, you go to your commentaries and say, well, what does all this mean, 3 through 15? You're going, oh my goodness, you know, this is complicated. And all the translators disagree with one another. I couldn't find one. And I've been, this is from years ago. I looked to see, well, what do they say? Because I want to understand this. And they're all trying to make it very precise. Well, this historical event and then this historical event. And then they try to really put it in a neat little package. And I, I got so brain disintegrated that I decided, well, I'm just going to look at it from a totally... Hebrew, you know, exaggerated, poetic fashion. It's kind of like the artist that, that gets his canvas and he throws that brush this way, big, huge brush strokes. And we look at it like we did years ago. And, you know, remember, uh, we called it abstract art. And we'd look at that stuff and we'd go, this guy's nuts. You know, that, we don't know what this stuff means. And, uh, and that's... I think that's why poetry was so critical, because it, it revealed something you can't really put in words. It revealed what God's spiritual power that we can see to some degree, and we can see it in Christ, because he was the image, the perfect image of God. But we can't really see it all, and poetry can give us a little bit of that. It says that there's the prayer of, of Habakkuk, according to Siganoth, which is... Uh, Explosive music and excitement. And so if I sound like a woman that's having a good hair day when I read this, you'll understand. Okay? 
Okay, I'm going to need a drink to get through this. I'm going to move rather, through it rather quickly with a few commas, but uh, th- three and four here. And, and by the way, these 13 verses are saying a couple of things. One, God is coming. He's come in the past, and he's kind of referring a little bit to that. He's come in the past. He's going to come again. In wrath, remember mercy is what he says. God, I know your wrath is coming, but bring back that mercy. We know you love us. And so he's coming. He's coming in massive power, and he's going to take care of his people. He's there to save his people, ultimately. So he says, God comes from, verse 3, God comes from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Well, those are two mountains way down south, south of, of, of Jerusalem. And mountains were places where they built their worship sacrifices and so forth, their altars. And so God comes from those high places. So it's a picture of God coming. And he continues it uh, by saying, His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. And so the, the heavens are saying, Look at us! Look at us! God made us. The earth is saying, look at us. God made us. Uh, verse 4. His radiance is like the sunlight and his rays shining from his hand. You know when you see the rays in the morning, everybody get up early enough? I usually don't. <laughs> but if you get up early enough and you, the sun's going to come over bogus over here and you see the rays before you see the sun. God is coming. They don't see him yet. Because the wrath is coming first, but he's coming. And so Habakkuk is excited about that. Then he's going to talk about his power in general here. Uh, I, I didn't get the last line there. Uh, and there is a hiding of his power. And that is the power that obviously he's on the other side of the mountain. He isn't here yet, but he's coming. Okay, verses 5 and 6 is just generally his power. Before him goes pestilence and plagues come after him. He stood and surveyed the earth and looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were, were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. His ways are a demonstration of great, awesome power. Years ago, when I lived here in Boise, my, my little daughter's three years old, and she was over at the neighbor's house, and uh, uh, she come running over, and I'm standing on the porch, and she comes up with this sad look on her face, and she says, Becca, there's a little girl next door, Becca said that her daddy could knock me down. Will you go knock Becca down? <laughs> and I said, well, I'll do better than that. I'll go over there and I'll knock her dad down. And my little girl facing <laughs> real big, her eyes opened up, and, you know, and, and, you know yeah, that's daddy power. You know, uh, she saw, I, and I called her last week, and I said, you know, I remember that time. Honey, do you remember that time when you came over on the porch and Becca did that? She says, yeah, daddy, I thought you were the strongest person in the whole world. Well, I used to be. (laughs) I lost it. (laughs) But at one time, I was the strongest person. That's God power. That's daddy power. And that's how he's there to protect us. I'm the pastoral care pastor here. and We have the teenager group that meets once a month over here in the in the fireside room, and, and we're going to be studying the book of Isaiah. And, and there's with a God who is able, especially chapters 40 through 48. And I, I've got a, a notebook I'm preparing for that. And if you haven't been part of the teenagers, you want to be a part of it. We're studying, we're, we're praying together, and we have a great meal. We're out there for two and a half hours. And we can't, and people still want to stay around, so we try to get rid of them. But 
If you want to come, you can. Now, if, if you are underage, <laughs> uh, 60 and above, if you're underage, you can come, but you have to have a false ID. <laughs> and, and you can get that on the Internet. Okay. But you've got to be born before 1953 to get But the people don't mind. They love it when young people come staggering in there. The only difference between them, the, our teenagers, and the rest of you is that we're just uh, wiser than the rest of you. <laughs> we, we were going to call our, ourselves wise guys, but that sounded too arrogant, so we're the teenagers. Okay, let's... let's He's talking about this power, and then he goes in there and he shows the next uh, two verses, 7 and 8, is the power shown at the Exodus when he brought the people out of Egypt. Listen to this. I saw the tents of cushion under distress. The, tents, uh, the, the, tent, the tent cushions of the land of Median were, were, were trembling. Well, both of Median and Cushion were on opposite sides of the Red Sea. These people knew what God was doing with the Israelites and bringing them out of Egypt. And so there was some trembling going on. It says, did the Lord rage against the rivers, the Nile, and all the things he did to the Nile? Remember that? Or was your wrath against the sea? As I thought, God, was your wrath against the sea when, you, when you, you held back the Red Sea so the Israelites could go through? On your chariots of salvation, as you, you, you saved your people, you brought them out of that land. And then he goes and this next section now, he's going to talk about his, uh, his, his, his power, probably in the flood. Maybe creation is stuck in here a little bit. But he says, your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. You, cl- you cleaved the earth with waters. So the water was making new trails in the earth. The mountains saw you and quaked. Oh my, look what he's doing. You know, like, uh, a downpour of waters swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. And you know how noisy it gets? You remember just be by the ocean? Can you imagine all the waters and, and all this noise that's going on? It lifts, that is the deep, lifts high its hands. And so the water is maybe shooting out. The water's coming down as we read about the flood. Water's coming up out of the earth. And so maybe that's what probably separated the Grand Canyon. It's split open and boom, that water comes flying out. There's tremendous pressure. And so the, 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 the elements are seeing what's going on. And then uh, it says, this, verse 11, the sun, oh, uh, the latter part of 10, uh, it, lifted, it lifted high its hands. Okay, that's where the, the waters are going up. Verse 11, the sun and the moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. So in other words, he looks like a warrior and he's coming in there and the sun and the moon left. Now, some scholars, they try to go back to uh, uh, Joshua when he held, they were battling, Israelites were battling and the sun stayed in the sky, but that could be what he's referring to. But he says here that they went away. They didn't stay there, they went away. And so you get into the poetic aspect of that, and you see the sun and the moon looking down at what God's doing to this earth and, 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 and you know, during the flood, and, and they're saying to one another, let's get out of here, we're next. Feeling that's going on, he's humanizing the sun and the, and the, and the moon. And then he goes off, he finishes it now, and, th- and he just talks about Israel again and saving his people. He says, in indignation, you march through the earth. In anger you trampled the nations. 
You went forth for your salvation of the people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the, uh, of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own spears the head of his warriors. They stormed in to scatter us. That was their plan. They ex- their execution was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses, on the surge of many waters. So he's talking about how God has delivered them in the past, and he's saying, God, do it again. I want to see that mercy make it come back. And God has done that with, uh, with us too throughout our lives. You know, we don't really, I don't think any of us really have a good perspective of the awesomeness of God. Uh, Isaiah tries to help us in his, in his last chapter, in chapter 66. The Israelites had, had the temple that God had them build. And in the Holy of Holies, he had that little box. I say little because God couldn't climb inside of it. In that box were articles that reminded them of, of what he did, and he brought them out of Egypt. And they would remember their God because that ark was in there. It represented God. But that wasn't God in that tent behind, that, behind the Holy Holies in that little box. And that's how the Israelites had seen him off and on all those 800 years that he had been taking care of them. In this little box. And so Isaiah says, and the Lord's speaking here, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is there a house that you can build for me? Where is there a place that I might rest? What, are you crazy or something? He says, I, with my hand, made all these things. Everything you see in the universe, everything you see on this earth, my hand made these things. Therefore they all came into being, thus says the Lord. And what's that? Here, here's this great, awesome, huge, one we can't even hardly define. And then he says, to this one I will look. The one that I'm really interested is the one who has a humble and a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Why would we want to tremble at God's word? Because he's God. He's an all-powerful God that loves us dearly and sacrificed for us. And so it made me think, okay, the Israelites could look back and they say, this is what God has done. That was the purpose for all these items he gave them that call, recall their attention on how powerful he was, even though they didn't do a very good job of it. And uh, it caused me to think back, well, what has God, how has he saved me in the past? What has he done? So I started going through this little list, and first of all, I have been in... Uh, Two accidents where I fell asleep driving. One time I had more than half of my family members in the car. Went off the road. We survived everything. We didn't even dent the car. Great accidents. If you ever want to be in an accident, that's the kind you want to be in. And uh, I'm such a lousy driver that I don't even want to be in the car when I'm driving. (laughs) That's bad. And my wife deserves an award for going with me. I mean, when we travel, she's either reading her Bible or doing some paperwork or sleeping because she doesn't want to see it happen. 
And wherever we're headed, she doesn't care because she figures she's going to heaven anyway. And so God has protected me through all these years uh, driving a car when I didn't deserve it. I have fallen off of two roofs, perfect landings, not a scratch. I could have broken bones. I could have died. I have a friend that just six months ago fell off a roof and died. He decided my time wasn't ready. He wasn't ready to take me. Uh, my buddy and I, back three years or three months after I was married, my wife and I went down to Pacific Grove, a Silomar Beach down there in the Monterey Peninsula in that cold Pacific Ocean. And I had married three months. My buddy had married over a year, and he had a little baby. And, and our two wives were on the beach, and we were playing frisbee, my buddy and I. And we decided, okay, we're tired. Let's go get get into the waves and let them, you know, body surf back into the beach and go home. So we took off into the ocean and kept getting further and further. There was a severe undertow and the tide was going out. We got pulled out. We felt like we were halfway to Hawaii. Within seconds, we were out there. And I, and I looked around and, and I'm telling you, those chairs way over in the, in, the, in the foyer, that's how far out from the shore I was, from the breakers. I couldn't believe what had happened. And I looked on the, I was in my little dog paddle looking, I said, well, what are my chances here? And I could see a couple of old people, or two wives, sometimes when the waves were coming down, you know, because the waves were blocking the view. A couple of dogs, that was it. I was a dead man. I figured there's no way, nobody's going to rescue me. I knew I couldn't swim back in, and I'm a good swimmer. My buddy was a better swimmer than me. He tried it, and he couldn't make it. Forty-five minutes later, as I'm on my back, and I'm dog paddling just to stay afloat, on my way to Oregon, because I was going north, you know, <laughs> You're supposed to go toward the rocks, and so I was trying to get away from the beach area, and I went back. Every once in a while, I'd, I'd look up on my dog paddle at shore to see if anything, nothing was, and then I'd turn around back on my, into my float again in that nice salt water, cold salt water, and I began to see what it was like to die, drowning. And, and you gradually go unconscious, and I could feel myself being really, really weak, and I knew it wasn't going to last much longer. I turned around. I got to talk to God, too. <laughs> anyway, I turned around, and, uh, and here comes this teenager with a surfboard. And he pushes it off to me. I grab a hold of it. I actually fell off at one point, but I, I barely could hold on to it. He swam over, got my buddy that was in that. He was unconscious, but still swimming. Grabbed him by the neck, pulled him in, turned around, come back and got me and pulled me in because I couldn't get myself in. I was so exhausted. God could have taken me and that would have been fine. My wife could have been... a widow, and that would have been God's will. But he decided the time isn't right right now. I spent a year in Vietnam and survived all those... more water. I survived all those rocket attacks. And then two years ago, I was in the hospital for a minor surgery, turned into major surgery. Blood pressure went up to 300, over 200. Doctor thought I was going to have a heart attack or stroke. I managed to come out of it normal. And so uh, God could take me anytime he wants. He'd take any of us anytime he wants. And he's even, he's, he's always there saving us when we don't even know it. How many times has he saved me when I didn't know it? 
not the ones I just mentioned that I did know. And I think of uh, when we raised our four little children. And, and, and you know, they, children love to try to kill themselves. <laughs> they, they go into the cupboards under the sink and they look for poisons they can eat. <laughs> they try to fall off of, off of these play, play machines in the park or, or, or they go out in the water and drown themselves like I tried to do. My wife and I go out to Eagle Island and those little kids, when they go out, and you know, especially when they're little tiny, because we love to be in the water. And one of us would always be out several feet in front of them, just walking back and forth. My wife, my, my turn, and it's my wife's turn. Keeping an eye on them. They didn't know we were saving their lives, constantly saving their lives. They were having fun. That's the way we're living our lives, and God's there saving us and doing things. Well, we don't even know that. And so where has God saved you? What can you look back on and say, yeah, he did it here and he did it there. He's always been there for me, even when I, even when I didn't know it. Without his, uh, God's real loving attention, the ruler of this world would have us all blind, lame, suffering from heart disease or cancer or dead on his timetable, not God's timetable. And he would have us blaming God for all the terrible things that happened. It's God's fault that this happened. That's his plan of attack. And Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And that's what the enemy comes to do. That's what the devil comes to do. He wants to make our lives miserable. He wants us worrying all the time. And he does a pretty good job of it. When we uh, walked out of that garden with Adam and Eve... We walked right into the world of the serpent. And 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says, The whole world rests in the power of the evil one. And we, we call all these terrible things that happen often, we call them Murphy's Law. Nah, it's the devil's law. That's his plan of attack. He wants us miserable. But God keeps a leash on the devil. He can only go so far. So whatever God gives us, five years, health until we're 100, or all the problems, and the problems we have with our kids, the problems we have with money, all those things, God says, I know, it's always going to be tough because the enemy's out there to make you miserable. And I want you to realize, here's my backpack, and, and, and you can put them in there because one of these days, this life is going to be over with and you're going to be with me. And that's, that's why we can trust him. Because he's a, a powerful God, a, a holy God, and one who is constantly saving us, uh, whether we know it or not. And then he finishes it by what Valerie said there. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, the, the, no fruit on the vines, that the yield of the olives should fail, no medicine, which the olive oil would, would provide, uh, and the fields produce no food, and the flocks should be cut off, so there's no wool, no grain, the cattle are not in the stalls, and there's nothing, and that's what's going to happen when the Babylonians come. It's going to wipe them out. There's going to be nothing for them. And even, you read in Scripture, that even that the mothers during that siege on Jerusalem were eating their babies that had died before them. That's how bad it was. And uh, we look at Habakkuk, and we see this, and we go, well, you know, Habakkuk, he had it all together. He finally figured it out. He saw the holiness of God and God's saving, saving ways. But 
The next day, Habakkuk is going to have to go right back and do it again. He's going to have to trust him again. He didn't have it once and for all, and everything's fine now. Every day he had to stick something in the backpack because we are programmed, our minds are programmed to live in fear. When we were born again, we were born again, I I was reminded of this recently, our spirits were born again, but our minds were not born again. And so that's why Scripture says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed with the renewing of the mind. Set your mind on the things above. We have to tell our mind what to do. So that gets us right down into the nitty-gritties of when you find yourself worrying, what happens? You get all anxious? You're difficult with your mate. You're difficult with your children. Sometimes you don't even know it. Why are you so uptight, honey? Well, I don't know. Stop and think. Why am I uptight? I'm uptight because something's bothering me and I'm afraid. Okay, you take that now and you stick it in Jesus' backpack. But if you don't think about what that is and you look and you say, my God is holy. My God cares for me. He's going to handle this. God, you take it. I will wait and see what the results are. You might, you're going to have to do it again tomorrow probably too, that same issue. But that's what walking by faith is and trusting Him. And, and I see that. This is my last example, folks. Don't forget this one. <laughs> it's, uh, when I was in high school, I, I was pigeon-toed. And, 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 and my other friends, you know, they used to feed her, feed her pointed in. And my friends used to tell me, hey, you're a pigeon-toed. Even my enemies, hey, you're a pigeon-toed. And I heard it enough, and you're a teenager. You don't like that, so you've got to change it. So for the last 50 years, I've tried to work to pull it out unconsciously when I'm walking, try to get, keep my feet straight. And some of you are, some of you are duck-toed. You know, you walk like Charlie Chaplin. And, and people will make fun of you. So you're trying to learn to bring your feet in a little straighter anyway. And uh, now I'm not talking about duck-toed, pigeon-toed. I'm talking about trusting God. We all have uh, duck-toed, pigeon-toed faith. And the way we handle it is seeing his holiness, identifying what it is and saying, okay, you're holy. You can take care of this. You love me. You're going to care for me. Stick it in his backpack. But if we don't consciously think about doing it, we probably won't do it. We'll just be miserable living in our worry and our fear. Father, thank you that you... Uh, are so tender with us. You're a a God of wrath that punishes sin. And you've punished it for us through Jesus Christ. And your love just pours all over us as you protect us. And, And yet we experience all these rotten things in this life. We worry about so many things. And yet you keep telling us, stick it in the backpack, stick it in the backpack. And when we do that, we can have that peace It's temporary. We've got to keep doing it, but we can have that peace. So thank you for your tremendous love and the the, the picture of you and, and how awesome you are. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.